Welcome to Future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, and together we'll explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Future of XYZ is presented in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Future of XYZ. Uh, we are going to be speaking about a very, very big topic, the future of learning. And with us is a phenomenal guest, Sage Salvo. Thank you so much for joining us on Future of XYZ today. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for having me. Excited to talk, share, and, and, and hopefully learn as well. Um, well, I, you know, the topic that we've decided to address is very, very big, learning. And, you know, you are both a social as well as an ed tech entrepreneur. You won. I, I mean, the awards list for you is quite mind blowing. It's everything from presenting at TEDx to representing the U.S. in a two time entrepreneur contest, winning the top top three, you know, new ed tech startups at, at South by Southwest, attending four times, being a fellow um, at, you know, the, the Clinton Global Initiative. Uh, in Harvard, I mean, being a mentor, teaching, writing, I mean, it, it kind of goes on and on. You have a master's in public um, administration, I believe it is, um, from the Harvard Kennedy School. You have an MBA, you have an undergrad degree from UNC, Charlotte. I mean, you have in a very short period of time come out of the gate swinging and obviously it's shown your own commitment to learning. So I want to give an opportunity here for our listeners and viewers, let's ground down in what is learning, especially in the context of this conversation that we're having. That's such a good question, Lisa. Like, what is learning? It's open-ended. It, uh, it has layers. I think there's a technical approach to think about it, which is if you look at what we apply in K-12, this means the student can demonstrate, you know, that they've absorbed and that they can apply some concept, you know, be it arithmetic, be it literary skills be it a, a set of data or historical facts, they just can demonstrate that they've absorbed or cognized from certain kind of learning objectives. That's what we count as as learning. But I think more you know, deeply about it, it's when someone's curiosity is being uh, engaged, right? Learning is, is a process more so than a destination. And I think in our system, we've looked at you know, can you score a 75 or above on this test? That's a destination, it's a diagnostic, it's an assessment, but learning is really everything that, you know, happened previous to that test and still happens as a result of that test. It's the process of discovery. And, and from there, you really got to look at and place curiosity in the middle of that process. Is a student motivated? Are they asking questions and they're coming to certain observations? That literally is, is, is what it means to learn. Um, see, I'm going to have you speak up a little bit just because of the audio, but I, I mean, that is such a brilliant definition because the process of discovery, I think, and 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 I think one of the interesting things that we'll talk about what your company today and the technology that you've developed does in facilitating learning. Um, but before we get there, I mean, I think what's so shocking, we're talking about K-12 education, which for any of my international listeners is what we in the U.S. have is our basic fundamental primary and secondary education. K stands for kindergarten. Usually it's five or six year olds and 12 is the last year of high school called senior year. And usually people are 17 or 18 years old. Um, that is a U.S. thing. I think what's shocking to me about the state of K-12 education in the U.S. today is, as you said, it is a diagnostic more than a process. You know, we we I think, you know, the OECD countries, you know, of 35 of the 
the world's largest, most economically productive countries in the world, we rank 31st in terms of performance on standardized tests, despite the fact that that is our only metric. The state of K-12 education in the U.S. today is, it seems to me, quite dire. And that is the foundation of the rest of our future. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of, you know, the the, the state of K-12 education in the U.S.? Oh, so we're, we're in, I would, I would think sort of an inflection point in our history. Uh, what the pandemic exposed was that there was so much stark inequity with resources that you got to address the resource gap first. You know, that's digital technology, that's access to online, that's access to the internet, broadband. But there was such a dearth and such a large gap between those that had and had the infrastructure and those that didn't. So there's there's an idea about how do we address that now. But what it also did was allow us to think about what does it mean to advance kids like to the next grade level without really knowing what skills they were grabbing. And this became evident when we looked at the graduation rate. Graduation rates were relatively stable. But if you began to peel back the layers of performance on the standardized test, they were dropping. So how are we advancing students through the system while they are actually receiving lower grades on standardized testing? And these are like national report cards, uh, NAP, national assessments. These are like your big hitters that only happen every couple of years. So that means that the system's actually not producing more thoughtful, more learned students. We're just graduating like a conveyor belt. Right, which which we've been doing for performance of, of, of for instance, athletes, college athletes for years, but that's not, you know, there, there are all sorts of places where this happens. But what's shocking about this is not only the assessment of the academics, is the socialization of kids during the pandemic just completely, I mean, already social media and screen time is diminishing all sorts of aspects of interaction, but it's also decreasing. And now with AI and things like this, writing and and basic fundamental operating, I would call it learning as, as you said, a process and as kind of the foundation for things. You know, there are lots of lots of statistics out there. I think one of the most shocking statistics to me is frankly that the U.S. ranks 125th in the world for literacy. Yeah. I mean, what that actually translates to are 21% of American adults are illiterate. Yep. 21%. I mean, this is, we are we are in the bottom 20% yep. of the world at large. And I mean, it, it'll get worse because the K-12. Because of what you're talking about. You know, and 54% of the people who are adults who are in fact literate are reading and comprehending at below a sixth grade level. Yes. Yes, which is why newspapers look the way they will. They look and they're written the way they're written as well. I mean, and why we're so excited about AI taking over all of this for us because no one then has to actually, to the point, learn. Scary. It is scary. I mean, this is to me like I mean, I've I've long held the foundational belief that if civil society is the pyramid, the foundational base of that pyramid needs to be education. I think you'd go so far as to say it needs to be literacy. Yes. That's talk, talk to me about your passion for literacy. That is ground zero. So if you look at scaffolding all other higher orders, order skills, it starts with a functional application of literacy. You can read various texts. You can interpret various texts. You can send communication. It's, it's like the 
ground zero on that pyramid that you spoke of. And so for me, literacy is like I've had an interesting journey with it. I uh, I began in D.C. public schools. That's where I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was a really bright kid. I would do well, oddly enough, on like standardized tests. I would get like perfect scores. Not so much perfect grades. That was a behavior issue on my end. But I, would, I could I could knock out the, the standardized test. So much so that the school, uh, they, they encouraged my parents to move me to a different school system. At the time, Washington, D.C., I think it was 89% black. We called it Chocolate City. You know, we, we had this great subculture, but the schools were like bottom of the barrel, like worst performing school district in the country, literally. 30 miles away in Fairfax County, Virginia, you had a top five school district. And so they just encouraged us to move out there. My parents looked at it. You know, I, my brother was 17 months younger. They didn't want us getting in trouble. So they made the move. But that created this huge culture shock for me where I went from this kid that never had a problem in school. My curiosities were fed. I loved music. I loved music. I, I was always singing and rapping in class. I began to do the same thing in Fairfax County. I would try to like bring songs, a lot, a lot of hip hop lyrics in the class and try to say how they were similar to what we were reading. And it just, it was frowned upon. It was, it was, and I did poorly. Like I really, I struggled to the point where I think I was like failing classes. I went from like a breathe to a problem student. And I think that was everything to do with how I was viewed and what I was bringing into the classroom, right? Like, whereas DC kind of uh, allowed me to bring that in and ingratiated my curiosity, Fairfax County was like, nah, that's not how we do it here. Uh, and so You're that- basically rejecting your base identity. My, my identity was not welcome. And that, that left a scar. And that actually is what I think years later, uh, was sort of my get back plan <laughs> with my startup was like, this is the way to address kids by the struggle of readers. Um, get them engaged first around content that is that is literarily advanced uh, and song lyrics. But but that's how I began thinking about the world of the written word. You know, I didn't see these barriers of like, oh, that's a graphic novel and that's a poem and that's a song. I didn't see that. I was seeing very consistent themes. I was seeing very consistent literary devices and the techniques applied. And I was seeing these worlds like very much in communication with each other. And that's what just opened up. I just love the world of the written word. I fell in love with it. I, I, I appreciate your sharing that. There are a lot of things to unpack. I want to come back to the book that you're writing and this incredible um, uh, inequity uh, in education and many, many aspects of civil society and business, but it's specifically in education of black and brown students. But before we go there, I, I, th I want to stick with something. Because we haven't yet talked about you being the founder and CEO of Words Live and the main tech product, um, which is called The Opus. I, I think I think what's so incredible to me about this is you took what you just were describing as your learning method in the D.C. public school system. And then what you took, you know, to to Virginia, where you still live um, and what didn't work. And you've now made it a tech product. Uh, talk to us a bit. I mean, you've delivered this now to to teachers in schools across the country. You are part of the Andreessen Horowitz, you know, uh, incubator of 2023, um, you know, which is totally incredible. You've won all sorts of awards for this technology. It's patent pending algorithm. Talk a little a bit about how incorporating musical lyrics and popular cultural text into learning plans actually facilitates learning. 
Yeah, so so this is it's an insight that I think songwriters and serious songwriters have, which is usually if you sit down to write a composition, you have some idea about what you want to express. How do you express it? Typically, you draw on the same techniques that you learned in English class, that the poets that you read previously, songs you've heard previously. So all you're doing is drawing on the same tools that are available for you. So in many ways, you're a literary artist. And you're just doing it in the form of a song. And so I can take examples of how to write a paragraph using a topic sentence and then supporting sentences from great compositions of song. Best start off with a song, the thesis, and they support an argument at the beginning. It might be in the form of a verse instead of a paragraph, but diagnostically, it's the same exact thing we're looking at. It's the same thing I want my kids to be identified. Hey, that's the topic sentence. Here are three supporting sentences. Here's a conclusion. I can get kids to do that. If you want to look at figurative language, I mean, the world of songwriting is replete with figurative language. You want to do things like grammar, vocabulary. It's all there. And any serious songwriter knows they're pulling, I mean, they're stretching themselves to pull in all the devices that they can from the literary world. We've just created this kind of false barrier that says that that's so far creative writing, you know, they're not, you know, uh, integrating. It's not serious literature. And it, it, it's, I just rejected that notion. But I did that because I knew when I sat down to write what I was pulling on. And I just, I, I, I used that example and, and just kind of scaffolded it up. Like, hey, we can build an entire taxonomy out of the history of songs and teach kids. And it's going to grab them because kids are already engaged in music. We know that, you know, preteens and teens consuming music at an unprecedented rate. We all have. We also know that music is such a great, great mnemonic device. It aids the memory like no other. And so if you just put those two pieces of data together, you're looking at a learning system that can help kids to memorize certain literary skills. That's going to help literacy. That's going to help us uh, in performance. And so that's, I just attempted to build that thing, like from the ground up in an application. Well, and the moonshot goal that this Words Live as a futuristic ed tech startup is built around is you're saying you know, this literacy moonshot is by 2025, 20, sorry, hello, 2045, right? 25 is already here, right? I know. I'm like, wait, that's two years from now. <laughs> to get two thirds of the nation students to grade level reading proficiency, which anyone outside of America is looking at that saying, how is that a moonshot? But we've already quoted the statistics that show that, you know, 51% of Americans who are literate, which is only 79% of Americans, are actually reading at sixth grade level or lower. So this moonshot becomes really, really material. Yeah. What, you know, beyond this tool and how it assists primary learning, um, what are some of the major opportunities that you see both for the application of this in learning beyond just the grade school level, but also what are the what are some of the other things that are happening in the field right now to also assist you know, underpaid, under overwhelmed teachers and underperforming, underfunded students. So I, I have, I, I got to preface this. I have mixed feelings about what's happening with the teacher workforce. So on the one hand, there's a movement for greater autonomy, micro schools, homeschooling, communal schools. These are very much a uh, phenomena that's com- coming out of the pandemic. But it's an attempt for teachers to say, I-, I can't do my job anymore in a public school system. We already had the charter school movement. We know in some cities like D.C., it actually has splintered the student body where it's like at parity, 50 year in public school, 50 year in private and charter school. 
So yeah, and New Orleans is another case study uh, that's like that. So yeah, I think you're seeing increasing, you know, observation of communities saying, we don't actually just have to send our kids to public schools. And the teacher's are like, I'm trying to get out of public school. So you see that, and I applaud that. I think that is fantastic. On the other side, though, I think there's an opportunity growing to get teachers compensated in ways that traditionally they may not have been. So if you look at this, there's a, there's a company called Teachers Pay Teachers, and I love them as a case study because what they do is they allow teachers to create workbooks, not just for their own classroom, but to actually go sell on the marketplace. So they've, they've quoted that they've had a couple millionaire teachers, and I don't really know if that's the goal or like whatever, how real that is. It's a nice incentive. It's a, it's a nice incentive, right? Like if, if that's your out or fine, right? Beyond becoming a millionaire though, I think what it, what, 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 the, what, what the possibility is, is that teachers have more than one income stream from their expertise. And, and that's a moment that I really wish we could drill down on and try to open up in public schools so that teachers aren't so pigeonholed administratively. And that this, this does become more of a, you know, a viable job. We were in a, a situation where we just had these teacher strikes in California. We've had teacher strikes all over the last couple of yeah, years. Yeah, but California was a big one and very, and very well reported in the news. Yes, and it, but the, at the base of it are is the compensation and the benefits package. Administratively, teachers are squeezed. Yeah. Their creativity is being sucked out. They, they don't have as many resources they can pull in with their own autonomy. Everything has to go through a procurement process. Their, their pay is, is paid to the student performance on standardized tests. They have to teach to the test. So their job has literally just, it's, been, it's like the life has been sucked out of it while we're not paying them. And they're putting in, I think it's something like the average public school teacher in America puts in something like $500 of their own money every oh, year money. Into, into materials for the basic classroom. Out of their own pocket. Right. Which there aren't, don't have any of. Maybe they don't, but they, they, because they literally can't go through the process anymore. It's 500 bucks. And it, again, if your salary is 40 K that. Yeah. And post tax, that's about 20, 20, 25 K. So it's a very, it's, 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 it's not a living wage. And then you're expected to pay out. And get a second job because it's not a living wage. And that, that that's, so that I'm hopeful and I wish that we, we would focus on the opportunities of public ed there. Um, but I, I just, I understand that grind and it's, it's, it's too much. And we're seeing a mass exodus of teachers. What is the role? I mean, this all sounds quite heavy. And and I am watching time. This is this is all heavy. Some of this is what the influence of politics is in oh education. I mean, we are teaching creationism in Texas, which then p- publishes textbooks that are distributed to 16 other states. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know what creationism is, it's basically the denial of scientific evolution as the means it says God created us. It is a Christian fundamentalist yeah. view of the world. And we are teaching it to hundreds of thousands of students who, by the way, don't know enough to know that this isn't real, that we're indoctrinating essentially students in incorrect information that is only going to set us as a country back further. But what is it? Sorry that I, I'll get off my soapbox. I'm not supposed to be on a soapbox. Um, but, but what is like the role of politics, you know, in, in this, in, in the world of education? All right. So if, if more so than any other variable, I think if you look at sort of the the splintering and fragmenting of the ed- education system, it is because politics has infiltrated it. And I'll give I'll give an example. 
So we fall under this area in education called culturally responsive teaching. Now, all of that really means is that we're going to address students culturally. We're not going to shun them the way I was shunned, the way I was ostracized. We're going to say, bring your culture into class. That's a vehicle to learn through. Again, process. Start with where you are. What are you consuming day to day? Uh, what music do you listen to? What, what movies? What TV show? Like, start there. Who are you? Bring that into class. So I can accept that, I can accept you, and we can use that as a place uh, to launch and to, to, to learn through. If you look at culturally responsive teaching, the acronym is CRT. I've been in meetings with superintendents, and literally because you know my presentation would say culturally responsive teaching, and they see CRT, they say, I cannot support this because I'm going to get killed politically because it's CRT. If, if there's nothing uh, like this, this has nothing to do with CRT being critical race theory. It's another hot button issue in education. Culturally responsive teaching literally shares nothing except art with critical race theory. But because literally of that visual, they're saying we can't support this, we can't bring it in, I'm going to get letters, I'm going to get emails, et cetera. So you By the way, critical race theory unto itself also shouldn't be a negative connotation. And, and you're writing a book, frankly, that I think I want you to be able to speak to a second because culturally responsive teaching, which I've never heard before. So that thank you for educating me and everyone. It, it, it speaks actually to, yes, meeting where you are. Our public schools, I mean, I went to high school, public school in, in Los Angeles County. You know, we had, you know, I don't remember exactly what it was, but 50 percent of my class was Asian. You know, that's Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Taiwanese. Um, you know, frankly, Southeast Asian of Indian, Thai, Lao, I mean, every, you know, it was a very mixed up. Plus we had Latinos and everything else. What was fascinating is you had to teach in multiple languages. You had ESL, English as a second language. This is another pressure. That is culturally responsive teaching. Also, people come from different places. But I think critical race theory is only looked at as like black people. Yes. You've written, a, you're writing a book about the impact of Brown v. Education, which was a Supreme yes. Court decision that was basically anti-segregation or desegregated schools. Um, we don't have a huge amount of time left, Sage. So I, just quickly, how is the future of learning going to be positively or negatively impacted by basically a denial of culturally relevant learning, you know, or, or teaching? So, so this, the, the premise of the book and the research I'm writing, it stemmed from an observation I made when I read the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education. And there was, there's a little nuance in one of the statements. And even if you think about the famous statement, separate um, but equal, there was this word that said inherently unequal. So to be separate was inherently unequal. That always struck me as odd. I began to do research. And what I arrived at was that a lot of the judges thought that if black students were left to their own devices, just the mere fact that they were black teachers teaching black students in a black school, it would be inherently inferior. Mm. That's not the conclusion <laughs> that I think Thurgood Marshall and a lot of the, quite frankly, black community wanted. That that's that, That's the wrong connotation. The outcome having the option to go to school where you want, having the option to go to school in your neighborhood. Yes, having the option to go to a school that's predominantly white. Yes, you, we wanted that option, but not because we were inherently inferior without. 
And that connotation right there actually steps up a culture war. Because if you do believe that Black, Latino, non-white students are inherently inferior, then yes, you're going to set up a hierarchy where what they bring into the classroom does not meet a standard. And because it does not meet a standard, we cannot be culturally accepting. We cannot be culturally affirming. We want to actually change them, raise them up to the standard because they, they're bringing an inferior product into the room. That sums up the culture conflict. And that's kind of where my launching pad uh, with thinking about education today. Wow. Wow. Started. I mean, I knew this was going to be way too big a topic for the short time that we have. Um, but we are at, almost at time. So I want to lobby one Hopeful question. I want to end on a on a on a hopeful. Oh, okay. You know what is your you know with everything that you have in terms of your own educational background, performance, uh, tech, you know, development, and this passion that is so evident for literacy and for learning. What is your greatest hope for where we will be in terms of the future of learning in you know let's say ten or twenty years from now? Ten years. So 2033, I do see more autonomous schools. I see micro and communal schools with more autonomy. I see charter schools proliferating um, at the same rate, but that, it's, it's been decent in certain cities. So I'm hopeful because I think that represents a moment to exact curriculum to, to the point of where a population actually needs it. You know, different students need different things. You can even do away with grades and have kids go up their own, you know, scaffold and band level without going to like grade level. I think that's really, really important too, as well. Almost Montessori style. Almost Montessori style. Like I'm, I'm, I'm for that. I, I love that I'll talk. And I'm hopeful that our politics will, 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 will get in the way in the next five to 10 years so bad that in the next 20 years, we'll have sort of a major, you know, reformation around public education. And that's going to be this idea, I, I think, I think it's going to get a little worse first, but I think that will cause us to think seriously about public education, free education, and kind of get with it um, from a technological perspective and a, a resource incentive perspective. Like teachers, they're rising up. They're not going to continue this pay schedule and these lack of benefits and being grinded out, but it's not going to continue. So I do, I am hopeful that we're all going to see a, a reformation there in the next 20 years or so. Oh, I love that. Um, uh, but the getting worse before it gets better seems hard to imagine. But I like that. I like the I like the long term strategic plan on this. <laughs> so we can all hope for it. I'm with it. I'm willing to do my part with it. Like I said, this is my area. So I I feel like this is um, a space I'm supposed to be a, a solution provider. Dave Salvo uh, of Words Live and the Opus Foundation, thank you so much for thank joining you. us on Future of XYZ today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thank you for your time. Much continued success. Thank you for this platform. Great. Thank you. And, um, you know, we, we, we talk about sparking curiosity at Future of XYZ, and this is what learning is about. That's why we exist. It's because of my own innate curiosity that I founded this in November of 2020. Uh, we are coming up on 100 episodes uh, presented in partnership now with Rhode Island PBS. Um, so anyone watching, if you didn't know, you can listen to us anywhere you get your favorite podcast. Just search for a future of XYZ. And please be sure to leave us a five-star review so others can find us also. If you are listening and you didn't know you can watch, you can find us on YouTube via ripbs.org forward slash XYZ. 
You can also follow XY, Future of XYZ on Instagram or visit future-of.xyz to learn more, nominate yourself or someone you know as a guest. We are excited to continue. Thank you again, Sage Salvo of Words Live for a great conversation on the future of learning. Thank you.